I'd like for us to uh, read a couple of verses from the 95th Psalm before we go to prayer. This has been set to music, so it's very familiar to us. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is, is a great God and a great King above all gods. Father, we know that you reign supreme. You're the Almighty One. And no matter how tumultuous things become down here, we know that nothing is out of your control and that your divine plan is ultimately prevailing. Lord, just give us the patience and the peace. Help us to live through the week in the power and the strength of the written word of God and of the Holy Spirit who takes the word and makes it real to our hearts and lives. Father, guide us this morning. Give us peace and a sense of your clear presence here with us this morning, even as you have promised to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We're studying in the 27th chapter of 1 Samuel. In the first portion of that chapter, which we looked at last week, we discovered that David had become so weary and so fearful as a result of Saul's relentless pursuit that he fell into despair. And, and he yielded the, to, to the temptation to do what would seem absolutely incredible to us, and, and that is to try to hide in the hands and in the lands of his hated enemy, to, to do that which seems to us taking matters into his own hands. This is one of the greatest temptations we have as we walk day by day, is to take matters into our own hands. God doesn't seem to be answering my prayer, therefore I'm going to go stick my oar in to the situation. And sometimes, of course, we really gum up the works when we do that. And this relentless, relentless, relentlessness of the pursuit is something that is common to us all because we do face the day-by-day assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil upon our lives. It, it never goes away. In fact, Gwen and I were talking earlier this morning that, you know, I, I think that if we ever find a long period of time when everything is going really hunky-dory, probably something is very wrong. You know, I think something is very wrong. Not that God doesn't give us peace, but he usually gives us peace in the midst of the storm. And, you know, there are periods of time when we have rest, and, and we, of course, look at the life of David, and after he became king, things were on a steady keel for a little bit longer periods of time, although he was constantly going to war and, and of course, getting himself into trouble in various ways. But that's the way it is in the Christian life. God gives us victory in the midst of war because you can't have victory if there's no war. David became capable, somehow, of convincing the enemy king now, I, I don't know what was going through Achish's mind, the king of Gath, you know, the Philistine king. What's going through his mind? Here you have before you a man who is saying he wants to serve you, who has slain Goliath of Gath, the great warrior, who has led numerous Israelite armies in slaying thousands of Philistine warriors, about whom has been sung that he slays his tens of thousands, and of course, implication being Philistines, and, and so you're going to believe him now when he says he wants to be your vassal. David somehow convinced the king of Gath that he would be a faithful vassal. I will serve you. You know, I, I'm hated over there. De Saul is chasing me around, so obviously I can't stay in Israel. So, so I, I will serve you. And Achish even said, okay, come and live in my capital city. Live in Gath with me. And so David moves there. 
But after living in Gath for a while, David begins to feel a little nervous. There's walls out there around him, and he's inside the walls with the enemy. He decides it'd be better to live outside the walls. And so he goes to the king of Gath, and he says, Would you give me a frontier city, someplace out in the boondocks, where I can live with my 600 men and their families? Give me a frontier town to guard, and I will defend your borders for you. That's how I will serve you as a vassal. Well, you know, there is a, a parallel to this in medieval history. In medieval history, kingdoms like France or, or the various uh, duchies and counties in Germany or, or whatever you might want to use as a parallel, it was very important to have vassals out on the borders who would serve as defense of the borders. In fact, they were called marcher lords. Uh, they were at the duke status usually, but they were often looked upon as actually more important than a duke who, who lived inside the kingdom because you're the first line of defense against outside attack. And so David was actually asking for a fairly significant position. He wasn't given much of a town, however. <laughs> he was given a little town of Ziklag, which we can't even find today. <laughs> Probably a pretty small town even in those days. But he was given that town. But what we discovered was instead of defending the city as a, as a segment of the Philistine border, he used the town as a base of operation for raids against nomadic peoples living in the northern Sinai desert. He specifically attacked three tribes whom we talked about last week, none of whom are mentioned on this map. The Gerzites, the Geshurites, and the Amalekites were the three people he attacked, and we, we just uh, started looking at that last week. But here's the wilderness of Shur, and that's mentioned in the passage. And, and Ziklag itself was right about in there. And so David made these raids down in through here. He crossed what's called the Brook of Egypt, which sometimes is thought to be the traditional God-assigned border, southern border of Egypt. Others say, no, it wasn't this. It was the Nile River. Well, whatever the case may be. He crossed into this region in here to attack these people. So let's look at the 27th chapter of 1 Samuel and begin reading at uh, verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for they were inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. And David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, Against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeremielites, against the Negev of the Kenites. Again, remembering, the word Negev simply means south. And that, that is the, the, see the word right there, Negev? It's the south part of what was traditionally Israel. It, it bears that name, Negev, but the translation means south. So it's the southern end here of the Dan to Beersheba. It's actually south of Beersheba, but it's within the territory that was assigned by God to Israel at the time of the conquest, parts of which they never conquered. And David did not, we read in verse 11, and David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, lest they should tell about us, saying, so has David done and so has been his practice all the time that he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, surely, he has surely made himself odious 
among his people Israel. Therefore he will become my servant forever. David and his raiders attacked the various settlements of the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. We talked a little bit last time about the fact that this was an, uh, an element of Geshurites. If these Geshurites were related to the Geshurites that lived up here in Syria, we don't know. David later will have dealings with Geshurites that live up there. Whether this is sort of like another tribe of the same nation or whether it just bears the same name, we, we don't know. The Gerzites, as I mentioned last time, are only mentioned in that one single verse. We do not know anything else about them. But the Amalekites, of course, are well known to us. There were at least four reasons why David attacked these people. The first of his reasons was to complete the conquest. They lived, these peoples lived in a territory which, according to the 13th chapter of Joshua, had been assigned to Israel. This was part of the land that they were supposed to conquer, and they had not done it. It was supposed to have been conquered in Joshua's time, and it had not been conquered in Joshua's time. So in effect, David could say, I am simply completing what the Lord has commanded. I am doing what Joshua or those that followed him failed to do, and I am conquering this land. Secondly, I think it can be said that David's operations against these people was to weaken the Philistines. It appears that these people were, if not allied with the um, Philistines were under the Philistine hegemony and therefore were somehow an augmentation to Philistine power. And therefore, by destroying them, David was in effect undercutting a Philistine authority, particularly in the south. And, and that's a particularly important area to have defense here. Because throughout history, um, well, throughout the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom of Egypt, there were uh, long periods of time in which Egypt itself was a threat to this whole region over here. In fact, during the uh, New Kingdom, which was roughly 1500 to 1100, more or less, along in there, uh, in that time period, the Egyptians actually conquered and controlled all the way up, a part of that time, all the way up to the Euphrates River. And so attack through that way was always a distinct possibility, so having a strong border there a strong line of defense there would be important to the Philistines. Thirdly, to halt raids into Israelite territory. Now David's position at Ziklag was both precarious and exposed. It was precarious in the sense that here he was, he was a vassal of Achish, he was out here at Ziklag, he was supposed to be serving Achish as protecting the border down there. And he knew that Achish, of course, would occasionally check up on him, so he was kind of under the oversight of Achish, and therefore he had to be careful. It was unlikely, therefore, that he would simply go out and make raids at random, haphazardly, with no motivation. The provocation came because of the exposure of Ziklag. We don't know its exact location, but as I pointed out to you before, it, the best guess was that it was somewhere in here. It's a little bit to the northwest of Beersheba. And that's a, a wide open area there. There was probably no other town within 10 miles of Ziklag. So it was sort of almost in a position that could be viewed as indefensible, unsupportable. And therefore, David felt exposed. And so this gave him a reason to launch a preemptive attack against the people that he thought could be a threat against him, as well as fulfilling the conquest concept. You all remember, I think, back in 1967, 
when there was a multiple attack poised to be launched against Israel by all of its surrounding neighbors, that Israel launched a preemptive strike, sent her aircraft out to the Mediterranean, they branched around, they wiped out the air forces of the nations that were poised to invade Israel. And this led to the so-called Six-Day War. So the idea of acting preemptively is not at all new to Israel. David did it here, we could say, in striking against tribes that could have been a threat to his exposed position there at Ziklag. Fourthly, and it's hard to know how to rank these, an important reason was to supply his army. David captured, we read in the passage, all of the animals and the clothing that belonged to these peoples. And he brought them back to Ziklag where they would help to supply the 600 men plus their families who were living with them, probably well in excess of 1,000 people, maybe 1,500 people living there in this small village of Ziklag. And they needed to be supplied. And so this was a way to resupply them and probably maintain the supply. But we don't know anything specific about the threat of the Geshurites or the Gerzites, but we know the situation concerning the Amalekites. The Amalekites were fierce raiders. They were a nomadic people who, like vultures, struck at any sort of weak spot. Remember, these were people who were dragging behind the weaklings, the, those that were not in the, in the main van of the Israelite advance. And God condemned them for that. He condemned them to destruction. He said, I want them wiped off the face of the earth. And it was the failure of Saul to do that. Remember, we go back to the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, and God had said to Saul, I want you to destroy the Amalekites. He didn't do it. He kept the king alive. He kept their animals alive. Several things that he did in disobedience. And therefore, he lost the throne of Israel. The Amalekites were the trigger for that whole situation here. And so David is out simply carrying out God's command to destroy the Amalekites, man, woman, and child. So I think it's important for us to note that David was not launching just wanton raids here. He wasn't going out into the wilderness and just finding people to attack because he was greedy or because he was bloodthirsty. But instead, he was accomplishing what he felt was God's will what would be good for Israel. He's securing the southern border for Israel, if nothing else. He had been promised the kingship. And if one day he does actually become king, even though, you know, he's in Philistia because he's a bit doubtful of the whole thing, by securing the southern border, he's helping himself later on when he does inherit the throne. These were all nomadic people. And since they were nomadic people, they did not live in permanent towns. Therefore, there's no mess mention in chapter 27 of killing the people and burning their towns, which is usually mentioned in association uh, with the destruction when the settlements are permanent. These people lived in tents, and so there were no towns to burn. And so it is not mentioned as such. But we are told that the populations were slain. Now, this is, of course, something we have a great deal of trouble with, and, and we've already talked about this before. As you know, this whole issue in Afghanistan, we're trying to go in there and, and take out the, the actual terrorists and, and those who are aiding and abetting the terrorists without what they call collateral damage, without harming the average uh, Afghan citizen. That's real hard to do, of course, when you're dropping 2,000-pound bombs around. But that's the whole goal. But this is the exact opposite. David is going in there and slaying the whole living population at least of the Amalekites, because they were to be exterminated, certainly he was wiping them all out. 
But in the conquest, that was also the practice. Let me just read a verse to you from, from uh, Joshua chapter 10. In verse 28, Joshua chapter 10, we read this. Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword and he utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it, he left no survivor, just as he had done to Jericho. And so we look at that and we say, how can you do that? You know, how can you kill men, women, children, old people, babies, the whole population? I don't know how you do that. But that was God's command. Now, did he do that to the Geshurites and the Gerzites? Well, we don't know. It says there that he slew uh, every man and woman. Well, man usually, woman usually is interpreted as an adult, right? Uh, it's possible that in the case of the Gerzites and the Geshurites that he didn't destroy the little ones, that the children were captured and that they were taken off to Ziklag where they would be raised as servants uh, to the Israelites there. That's a possibility at least. But in the case of the Amalekites, they were to be blotted out uh, completely as if they were a cancer on, on, on the human race. The wealth of animals that was garnered by this raid probably was sufficient to keep the Israelites well supplied now that David and his men at, at Ziklag, well supplied now probably uh, in, in perpetuity. Probably the, the herds were large enough and that they would have calves and lambs and so forth and manage to keep the, uh, the people supplied because the tribes that David destroyed probably far outnumbered his own force of men. He had the element of surprise uh, on his side and uh, therefore was able to do this, I believe. There are some questions that we have as we read through Scripture that you, you and I are never going to find a totally adequate or at least satisfactory answer to the question that is raised, such as the question of how do you wipe out an entire population, including small children. I'm not going to try to <laughs> solve that problem because I think it, there are some conundrums that exist. And uh, I think God will make that clear to us one day when we all, as I say frequently, get to sit down and watch the great uh, eternal video <laughs> as God replays it from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 and says, now this is what I was doing here. <laughs> we say, oh! Um, yes. That be a mercy to the yeah, my, my wife is saying that possibly that's a mercy to the babies because obviously the babies will be instantly translated into God's presence, whereas if they were raised in a pagan condition, they would grow up to be as lost as their parents were. So that's a possibility anyway. Apparently, David was expected to report periodically to Achish concerning his activities. And concerning the situation on the frontier, how goes it on the southern frontier, David? And so after he completed these raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, how long did this take? We don't know. We, we just simply know from the passage we read last time that at the end of the previous chapter that David was in the land of the Philistines 16 months. Does that, does that mean entirely from the moment he crossed the border and talked to the king of Achish until he was out of the land? Or did that refer specifically to a certain period of it? We, we don't know. But we could say probably the raids took at least a month of the time to, to accomplish. When it was over, David traveled the 25 miles or so from Ziklag here up to Gath, which was right about in there, to report to Achish. I'm here, sir, to report 
on conditions on the southern frontier. Whether David had been expected to make raids or whether in his conversation he had implied that he was making raids, Achish said to him, where have you been raiding, David? <laughs> kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Where have you been raiding? Well, since the peoples he had attacked were enemies of Israel and were friends of the Philistines, David did not tell the truth about what he had been doing. He flat out lied to Achish. He fabricated raids. I and mean, he probably thought about this ahead of time. Let's see, who shall I say I was raiding? <laughs> and so he tells him that he had been carrying out raids against the Jeremiahites. Now, Jeremiah was a brother of Caleb. And so these are the descendants of Caleb's brother. And you know how Caleb was viewed as a mighty warrior. Jeremiah was probably akin to that. So Achish would say, good. Those guys are tough dudes. And then that he was also raiding against the Kenites. Now, the Kenites were an, a, a, an associated people. They're somehow connected with the Midianites. Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. And uh, Moses' uh, brother-in-law led Israel on part of the travels before Israel entered the Promised Land. The Kenites joined Israel once they were in the land. And the Kenites were given land down in the area of Judah. And so you have this friendly tribe living within Judah known as the Kenites. So he, he said that I have been attacking them also. Well, since Ziklag was in the Negev, and he's referring to these people in the Negev, Achish says, well, one and one equals two. He's right there. They're not too far away. This is very logical. This is plausible. I accept what you're been, you've been saying, even though he had no reconnaissance. You know, he didn't send a U2 up, go over and photograph, find out what David really has been, been doing. Now, verse 11 of this passage explicitly states that one of the reasons that David had wiped out whole populations of people that he had raided was to keep them from coming and telling Achish, no, 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 that's not what David's been doing. He's been down messing around in the northern Sinai and he's been wiping out our people who are your friends, Achish. He didn't want anybody coming up and reporting what David had been truly doing and so he wiped out the populations. If Achish had learned about what David was really doing. Now, I believe that when David was in Gath, that quite a few of the people in Gath were saying, as Achish lost his marbles, he's brought the killer of Goliath, the enemy of the Philistines, and he's living right here in Gath with his 600 men. Well, how, how can this be? And that's probably one of the reasons why David wanted to go out and live on the frontier. He had heard these rumors and he knew that Achish, after a while, might get nervous about the whole thing. And so if word came that David was actually attacking enemies or, or, or friends of the Philistines, then Achish would have proof positive that the suspicions of some that David was not truly loyal to him, that those suspicions were correct. Instead, Achish chose to believe David. And he said to himself, David has made himself odious to his own people by attacking them. And therefore, he will be my servant permanently. Of course, this is exactly the opposite of what was happening. David's raids were endearing him to Israel because he was attacking the enemies of his people rather than alienating them as Achish believed. So notice this. 
We have heard it said you can't have it both ways. By his actions, David was building his prestige and his fame amongst Israel, and by his lies, he was building trust in Philistia. Now, that sounds like having it both ways to me. Scripture makes no judgment here upon David's words, upon his intentional deception. This is not an accidental deception. He flat out lied directly to Achish. Commentator Matthew Henry states, we cannot acquit him, that is David, of dissimulation, and his equivocation was not at all becoming his character. In other words, Matthew Henry says this is not David at one of his high points. Now, of course, some will argue that deceiving an enemy of God is neither immoral or sinful, that there's no such thing as a lie to someone who is an enemy of God. Well, that can be argued one way or another. But I think it's very important for us to realize that what David is doing here is not setting an example for how we ought to operate in this immoral world. Chapter 28, we read these words. Now it came up to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And David had removed from the, uh, Saul had removed from the land all those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered and, together and came and camped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I might go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. I think the first two verses of this chapter that we just now read provide us a bridge, a bridge between David's appearance before Achish and this, this little scenario we just described of David at something less than his uh, most sterling and the events which we're going to read about in the 29th chapter of 1 Samuel. In this passage, David has been summoned to come before Achish. The Philistines are preparing for another assault. I mean, the, the situation between Philistia and Israel was much like the situation we see today between the Palestinians and, and the Israelites. I mean, it's always going. There's always something happening. There's hardly a moment of peace or any extended peace between these two alien peoples. And so David is being called up here to stand alongside Achish. You are my vassal, therefore you will stand with me, you and your 600 men, and I want you to go forth with me to the camp. The camp's in Israel. Well, David had given his allegiance. He had pledged himself as a vassal to the Philistine king. And so Achish had every right to expect David to serve at his side in the impending battle. I think David was taken aback by this. I don't think David had planned for this at all. 
Achish was expecting him to do something which he couldn't refuse because he had sworn allegiance to the Philistine king. So he can't say no, but at the same time, can he fight against his own people Israel? No, he can't do that either. So David is between, you know, Scylla and Charybda, or if you will, a rock and a hard place. So what does David do? He seems to acquiesce, and he makes this interesting statement. Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. What does that mean, David? <laughs> I mean, talk about an equivocal response. Make what you want out of it. <laughs> what are you going to do, David? Well, let's see. I'm going to do three flips and, and, a, and a handspring. <laughs> you know. What can David do? Hmm. Achish chose. Now, this is Achish's own decision in his own mind. Achish is a man who, it seems, had convinced himself that David would serve him and David would be loyal to him and no matter what David said or how he acted or anything else was going to convince him otherwise, at least to this point. And so Achish chooses to believe that David was emphasizing his loyalty to him. Ah, you will see what I can do. And he says, ah, he's going to fight for me and demonstrate his great power by which he slew Goliath. But in his heart, David knew that when push came to shove, there was no way he could stand with the Philistines against his own people, Israel. He would have to turn his back on the Philistines and he would have to fight on behalf of Israel. Even if that meant siding with Saul. The situation became stickier. When Achish enthusiastically said, ah, you're going to show me what you can do, therefore I'm going to appoint you as chief of my bodyguard. Whoopee. <laughs> now that's an honor. That's a great position. In normal circumstances, the person would say, oh, wow, thank you very much, because it is a highly honored position. But for David, he wants to live in Ziklag. He doesn't come back to Gath. He doesn't have to go out with Achish every time Achish went out and be his bodyguard or at least be head of his security division. This was not what David was looking for. I think David is beginning to feel at this point that his decision to live in Philistia was backfiring on him. If we make a decision in the flesh to do something, it will backfire on us. It will backfire on us. If he had known the story of Br'er Rabbit and the Tar Baby, <laughs> he would have resonated with Br'er Rabbit. Oh, 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 I'm stuck to this thing. The old German commentator, Delich, however, reads between the lines here. And he puts a positive spin on David's equivocal statement to Achish. This is what Delich says. David gave an ambiguous answer. Definitely so. In hope that God would show him a way out of this conflict. No doubt he had prayed earnestly in his heart and the faithful God helped his servant. Well, Delich is, is, is not a prophet, but I think he has hit a nail on the head here. We aren't told whether David prayed in his heart, but I think David prayed in his heart because it wasn't looking very good for him. And what he says at the end of that statement, though, is I think profound, and the faithful God helped his servant. Does the faithful God help us no matter how deep a hole we dig for ourselves, of our own doing? Does God just say, well, you dug it, you get out of it? Is that what God does? 
Well, last week we read from Hebrews chapter 13. We won't go back to that, but in the 13th chapter of Hebrews, God says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The word never is an absolute word. It is not an equivocal word. It is not an ambiguous word. It's a very distinct word. And in Romans 8, we have the promise which defines what that word never really means to us. And let me just read passage you know so well, Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know, oh, that's not the ones I want to read, 38 and 39. You know 28 and 29, of course. 38 and 39 are the two I want to read. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, in other words, the forces of God or the forces of the evil one, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what never means. Because within that statement are all possibilities. All possibilities from the outside or from the inside. In other words, God knows what we will do in the future. And he has claimed us to be his. And he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He means I will never leave you nor forsake you under any circumstance. Now, you and I are familiar with the fact that our pastor and Frank Hankins in recent weeks have both preached on a passage in Genesis having to do with Abraham. And Abraham was a biblical example of a man who dug a deep hole for, him, for himself, not once but twice. Same hole. You know, you dig a hole and God pulls you out of it. Why would you dig the same hole again? You know, God fills it all in and you go on. And then you dig that same hole again. I mean, it's like, duh. But Abraham, you remember, moved into, he moved into this territory. He moved to Gerar, which was down in this area down in here. And while he was in Gerar, he noticed that the king of Gerar, whose title was Abimelech, kind of liked Sarah. And so, as she had been told, Abraham said of, of her, she's my sister. And so Abimelech takes her into his harem. Now, whap! Abraham, this had happened in Genesis chapter 12 in Egypt. Now, what are you doing? How could Sarah... <laughs> hate to say it, but talk about grounds for divorce. I mean, you know, <laughs> this guy's a total nincompoop. He was humiliated in Egypt, and this is an identical scenario. He doesn't want to die. He's afraid that Abimelech is going to want her, and, and if, she, if he knows that, that Abraham's her husband, he'll kill Abraham so he can marry the widow. Abraham is a slow learner, but God, gracious God, with his wonderful mercy, he protected Sarah in that situation, and he told Abimelech, you're a dead man. He says, but I didn't touch her. God says, I know because I didn't let you. And I've closed up all the wombs in your entire country until you give this woman back to her husband. Abimelech is scared to death. And the thing about it that you read in the 20th chapter of Genesis is that not only did Abraham get Sarah back, but Abimelech gave him animals and servants. He poured a whole pile of gifts on him. And he said, anywhere you want to go on my land, you can go there and you can live there tax-free. Now the question is, does God bless sin? The answer is no. God does not bless sin. But does God bless repentant sinners? Mm. 
The answer is yes. God blesses repentant sinners, and sometimes abundantly. <laughs> I mean, Abraham becomes a gr more rich man than he was before. Abraham was a mighty sheik, but all the mighty sheiks of history have had feet of clay, as did Abraham and as did David. And so that does not, of course, ultimately give us a, an excuse to ground digging deep holes and jumping in because we know God will rescue us, but it helps us to understand that when we have failed and fallen and dug such a hole, God will not forsake us. He will help us, he will lift us out, and he will bless us. All right, next week we'll, we'll pick up from there.